The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, we continue with the recordings from Wigram, when we had the forum meet down there in September. The following speaker is Paul Harrison. We had the inevitable technical hitches that you always get at such live events. 
Here's Paul. If the sound had been going, you would have heard the sound of a magical art form called Morse code. Because I'm basically a radio operator. Now, at the bottom bit is in the 35 years of my Air Force career, communications with aircraft went from 25 words a minute Morse, and a Morse word is five characters, to 10 megabytes per second. So that shows you how fast the ability to transfer information between an aircraft and the ground, or the ground and an aircraft, has developed over that period of time. So there you are, a little bit of early years. Um, born in Tauranga, educated at Tauranga, Rotorua, Greymouth, and then back to Tauranga. And in 1963, I did my school certificate and was waiting for the results. And my father said to me, right lad, what are you going to do next year? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, you're in the aeroplanes and things like that. Here's some forms. What's that? That's the form to join the Air Force. Oh, okay. So on the 23rd of September 1963, at the tender age of 16 years and one month, I received my approval to join the RMDF on the 4th of January 1964 as 81657 Boy Entrant Telegraphist UT. A magnificent day. Something else happened on that day. Anybody know what it was? It was the day John Kennedy was assassinated. Not, not at the centre. <laughs> so there you are, off to Wadburn. Um, that's me. A whole bunch of us, 132 of us joined uh, Boy Entrance School on the 4th of January and 119 graduated at the end of the year. It's a full one year course. So apart from the military schools and all of the uh, things that we did there, as the telegraphists, we also started our trade training halfway through that year. So we started to learn Allied Communications Publications Procedures because all communications within the defence environment used within the Commonwealth and Allied Nations a common procedure for all types of communication. So we had to learn the ACPs backwards, the ACP for 124 for Morse, 125 for radio telephone, ACP, <coughs> ACP 131, uh, Q and Z codes, ACP 127 tape relay. So all allied procedures so that communicators from any armed force of the Commonwealth and allied nations could talk to each other. After the um, course at Boy School, I came down to 2TDS here and we did our telegraphist course. Now, I was the last, last boy entrance course, course 21, and I was the last telegraphist course, course 40. That was an 11 month and five day long course, the longest course currently then run by 2TDS. In that, we again improved our typing skills and our Morse skills, learnt the JSP series of uh, operating uh, manuals, which was joint warfare, because as communicators, we had to provide the communication systems for the operational elements of Army, Navy, Air Force to do their job. Now, the JSP series of books were UK-based, because in that, those days, we were still oriented towards the UK. Now, 
While this is important in my future career, is it because we had to understand the operational side of the Air Force to provide the communications to it, meant that we meant that as communicators, we had a greater insight into the whole raison d'etre of the RNZAF from woe to go. So that allowed us also to go flying quite often because we were familiar with the aircraft operations and the need uh, for how the aircraft operated, we were quite often invited uh, to go flying, especially here at Wigram where we were training navigators and signalers with the Devon aircraft. When the Devons were away on a SIGX or a NAVX, they, as soon as they left VHF range, the only communication they had with anybody was by HF, Morse, and we were then responsible for them uh, for the total distance of their flight until they came back within VHF range. So we had certain procedures where they would establish communications with us before they left. When they got off the ground, they would ask us to take responsibility for them. And as an 18-year-old by then, I was taking responsibility for the sole communications link with that aircraft for the next four to five hours, wherever it may be, out over the ocean or over the mountains. Um, which led to some quite interesting scenarios uh, over the time where we lost communications with the aircraft. Uh, aircraft were blown out to sea on a night Navex, three aircraft. One got to Woodburn uh, with 30 minutes fuel. One got back to Wigram because he actually worked out that things were all going awry, had an hour's fuel left, and the third one got back to Wigram and ran out of fuel taxiing in. So that could have ended up with a great disaster, but we were in communication with the aircraft on HF and alerting them to uh, all of the alternatives they could do. So I spent quite a lot of time um, bludging rides, which was good fun. One of the interesting uh, things I did um, in July 1966 was Operation HiCat. Wigram provided the communications for the U-2, Apex 2-2 was his call sign, operating out of Christchurch doing the HiCat air turbulence trials um, from here to uh, north of Fiji and we also uh, provided the HF communications for uh, 20514 which was the RB-47E, the support aircraft. And it always used to amuse me because uh, the U-2 pilot would come up and request permission for above flight level 60 uh, Christchurch to uh, south of Nandy return. Well, the only aeroplane in the whole of the New Zealand infantry that could get anywhere close to B-60,000 was a Canberra. And they didn't only get to 40,000, so you're not going to hit anybody. <laughs> but they had to have the procedure. Um, just very quickly... Uh, because we provided the battlefield communications, uh, we spent, well, certainly in the first five years of my life, I spent most of it in holes in the ground at Tekapo or Wairu or some other godforsaken place that the Army wanted to play war games. Um, and that's again where the, the whole Army, the whole scenario, the battlefield scenario for the New Zealand Army had changed. About 1963, they finally admitted that Rommel was dead. There was no need for a division. And the best that New Zealand could do was to have three brigades, one full brigade and two territorial brigades. So their whole, whole battlefield situation changed and scaled down. Now, within the JSP context, the manual of warfare context for a brigade, 
Within that brigade, you had a brigade air support officer who provided all of the air element support for the army on the ground. And this remembering <coughs> about 65, 66, we were suddenly into a, a war in Southeast Asia. So the orientation went very close to close in support, close air support, air mobility support, which Buck talked about before. So us as communicators, we were heavily involved in providing all the radio circuits at a rear level and at the front level, right up to forward air control level, to support those activities. So hence, lots of time spent in holes in the ground at Wairu and Tekapo and other stupid places, and running around with guns and things. Interestingly enough, the RNZAF was not geared for those type of operations in terms of all support equipment. The first exercise I went on, major exercise I went on at Tekapo, I went down there with my Garbadine raincoat, my ammunition-type ankle boots, crockery and a mug and everything like that, to live in a hole in the ground for two weeks. The Army took pity on us and gave us mess tins and some proper equipment. I was armed, though. I had the, ba I had the base warrant officer's best parade bloody webbing and a 38 Smith & Wesson pistol. That was great, so I had this and we had some blank ammunition, so the, uh, John Scrimshaw, the, the Bezo, he took us down to the lakefront and we stood there one day going bang, 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 just to say we could fire these things. Um, but the interesting thing with that was about halfway through the exercise, um, we broke one of the 120 ampere hour lead acid, acid batteries. And that because they are in the Air Force, they are an A-class item, a broken battery had to be returned to go back to supply to be officially written off. Whereas the Army, if they broke a battery, they just tossed it into a ditch and just grabbed another one. So I carried this battery up a very steep hill, up to the roadhead, and it was taken away. And that was fine, until about three days later, when all these holes started appearing. <laughs> like, especially around the base warrant officer's webbing. So when I got back to Wigram, I went in and my flight sergeant said to me, how did it go, lad? I said, oh, it's had a great flight, we had a great time. Uh, well, I got a small problem. He said, what's that? And I said, well, here's the brass buckle and the two brass Ds of the base warrant officer's webbing because the rest of it's gone with letters and battery. And he went, oh. But anyway, that was the fun. So we did a lot of those and we learnt, we learnt a lot. Um, then... In April 1968, I got posted to Wellington. And I arrived in Wellington, and my first day in Wellington was a very auspicious day. 10th of April 1968. What happened on that day? Called the Wahini Storm. I woke up at 3 o'clock in the... Uh, no, sorry. woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning in the barracks at Shelley Bay, lying in my bed, with water coming all over me. And the window was closed, and the water was being blown around through the window frame. And I thought to myself, I've heard about this windy, wet Wellington, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> what a great day that was. There was no power. Um, we got into the, one of the big buses and went to, into Wellington. As we drove around the bottom of the airport, a mini went rolling past us. Um, we got into Wellington. There was absolutely no power in Defence Headquarters because that was the week that the Public, Public Works Department had decided to take the standby generator down and not tell anybody to arrange an alternate power. So we were cast. Now, the 
Communication Centre in Wellington was the hub of the whole defence communications network for all New Zealand and the interface with every overseas network that we had. And so there was just this big blackout. So what did we do? We had a hunt round and we found an old ZC-1 World War II transceiver. Somebody went down and opened up the Chief of Air Staff's car and pinched his 12 volt battery. We got a piece of, of Don 10 telephone wire and hung it out the window on the third floor and myself and another operator operated a Morse circuit because I was the most recently qualified or experienced Morse operator having just come from Wigram and we operated a circuit to Wairu, to the Navy State Navy um, comms up at Wairu, and all we did was we sent a, like Buck said, every 30 minutes we sent an ops normal, we're still alive. And that was it. That was the whole of the comms of the Defence Force on the Wahini day. Anyway, so they were, they were all good fun. Um, 1969, Pluto. Because I worked shift work in Wellington in the comms centre, when I had my days off, I went and helped the guys at the air movements at Rongatai because there were only two air movers at Rongatai and they were always short, especially if they had um, more than the shuttle coming through their other aircraft. So I used to go out and give them a hand, which was, of course, very good because I got rewarded with flights. So I used to have a, have a reserve seat on the Chief of Air Staff's DC-3, every, well, C-47, every time he went to the Royal New Zealand Aero Club annual pageant. L.A.C. Harrison was down the back, so free air shows. Um, and also when Operation Pluto started, um, I helped load the freighters at uh, Wellington and then did a number of flights uh, across in the freighter because they only carried the pilot and the nav, they didn't carry the signaller. And that photograph you can see on the right was taken from the signaller's position in the cockpit of the freighter. And we did, uh, I did about four trips of that and then a trip in the Herc. Uh, one of the trips we did on the freighter we shot down a Hercules. We were trundling along at 2,500 feet and the Herc was going low level the other way to 1,000 feet and the pilot and the freighter goes... The other funny thing that happened was the Army, Army movements guys were loading the freighters and there was a good wind blowing so they had opened the doors in the freighter, the load went in but as they opened the doors, they didn't walk them back with the wind, and one, the port door went bang and it stops. So when we filled the freighter up and we closed the doors, one door was four inches lower than the other. So you couldn't lock them. Well, what are we going to do? The only place they can fix this is a wood burn. So we've got to get this sorted out, some wood burn. So look around and, uh, and uh, the old pilot said, oh, okay. And he called the guy over the forklift and said, hey, just put your tine under that low bit and just very gently, click, 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 right, we're off to Woodburn. <laughs> and we went to Woodburn and landed Woodburn, opened the doors and said to the, said the tech, is it Woodburn? She's yours, it's stuffed. <laughs> so off we went. So that, that was sort of uh, Wellington. Um, and we, yeah, we used to have great fun in Wellington. Shelley Bay was a great place. Anyway, in uh, September 1970, every three years in those days, the Air Force posted you, regardless. So every three years you moved. And you didn't have a choice where you moved, they just moved you. So my three years up in September at 70, I was posted to Whanua Pai. Um, and worked in the communication centre up in Whanua Pai. Now, one of the advantages that we had as communicators is that we held 
very high secretive clearances. So we were allowed to go flying on the P3s. None of the other groundies were allowed to go flying on the P3s unless they had those clearances. So there's very few. And they, most of the times if they did go flying it was only purely on a test flight so they weren't actually doing um, operational type things. But we were allowed to go because of our security clearances. We actually used to fly occasionally and we would act as a, as a second radio operator. So we'd sit in the radio, radio bay and we'd send teletype messages or we'd send, use the Morse key and things like that. So that was a great deal of fun. So um, I did a number of flights. One of the m most memorable flights is on the P3, the mad boom at the back had to be calibrated against a set of set manoeuvres in the air about every three months. So you used to go out and it took three hours to do this, so you'd fly out over, over um, normally off the Kuiper range out to sea, and the aircraft went like that, at the same time rolling like that. So when you went up the top of the parabola, guess what? Weightlessness. So the trick in the P3 when they're doing that was you'd sit down in the galley on the floor, and as you went over the top of the parabola, you'd lift off the floor. Hey, this is cool for the clunks. It was only sort of three or four seconds, but you actually did lift off the floor. And that was great. So we were sitting there one day doing this, and there were about four of us down there, hey, this is cool. And then the, because that's where the galley is anyway, and then the fridge door opened and a big, big jar of cordial came out and went, <laughs> it wasn't fun anymore because we had to clean it up. <laughs> so there we go. So that was. So that was it. Um, and then on the 8th of January 1971, um, I did a um, uh, Japanese fishing patrol flight. So we left Fanua Pai at uh, half past five in the morning. We flew right up around the top of the North Island, right down the west coast of the North Island, across down the sounds. We flew low level through French Pass came back up through Cook Strait and then right round the east coast of the North Island, around and across and back to Fenuapai. Um, and that was, what was it? Six hours fifty. The interesting thing was that we were flying up off, off Gisborne and the co-pilot said to the pilot, he said, he said, Gisborne's a weird airfield. He says, it's got a runway, it's got a railway line halfway right across it. No, it hasn't. Yes, it is. No, it bloody hasn't. Oh, bugger, we'll have a look. So from 10 miles out to sea, we're suddenly over Gisborne. Oh, you're right. And you're back out to sea again. <laughs> and then we came round and we came up past Wakatani. And by that time, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning on a nice sunny January day. So we had to go bird watching down in Papamoa Beach, didn't we? Low level to see who was wearing a bikini. So there's this P3 hurtling past Papamoa at 250 feet at 300 knots. You said a lot of fun in those days. I'll just digress very briefly. Back in um, 1967, now, everybody knows Devon 1805, the one that's currently flying. Right, to me as a communicator, it was Zulu Mike, Zulu Kilo Delta. That was its call sign. We identified the aeroplanes by their call sign rather than by the serial number because that's how we talked to them. I was on a watch where it was doing a Navex off Dunedin and it was struck by lightning. Now, we lost comms with it, 
Um, and there was quite a bit of concern going on because it was overdue at SCED and we couldn't get comms. And then eventually um, they got VHF comms with Dunedin and said, yeah, we've been struck by lightning, um, but everything's okay, we're returning to Wigram. Um, when it got back to Wigram and landed and stopped and they got out, the front of the aircraft looked like somebody had fired a 12 gauge at it. It was just all pierced with holes. The cow's tails on the ailerons, the elevator and the rudder had all gone, just been totally melted. There were six ribs in both elevators were crushed. The uh, trailing aerial, because in, in the Devon, when, when they had HF going, they had a trailing aerial that's hung down 80 feet underneath the aircraft when it was fully, that had disappeared. And the uh, big piece of coax between the aerial tuning unit and the transmitter, all that was there was the outer coating. The wire had completely vaporised. It took them six months to repair the aircraft, including three months of demagnetising all the metal bits in it to get the compasses to come back with intolerance. Um, so that's just a quick diversion. So anyway, more interesting stuff. So got, got, got fed up with Whanua Pai, so we're off to Singapore. Yay! Bad news. Right before we go to Singapore... Hey, we're out on the booze, because Harry's off to Singapore. Yeah, beauty. So I was a Bacardi drinker in those days, so we drank Bacardi and Coke. We ran out of Coke, so I drank Bacardi. I've never been so hungover for two days in the back of a Hercules from Whanua by the Alice Springs, Alice Springs to Changi. I've never did it. I've never drunk Bacardi again, actually. Strange situation. We were there to set up the Anzuk force, which was the Brits were pulling out east of the Suez, 71. Um... When, I, when we arrived in Singapore, there were 15,000 British servicemen and women and children and families on the island. By the end of that year, they were down to 4,000. There were six VC-10 flights a day leaving Singapore with British dependents and families and troops. So that's why we were there. So we were part of the Anzac Force, except that we arrived a little bit too early for the actual force to come into being. Now, we were posted to 41 Squadron for administrative purposes because that was the, the one RNZF unit on the island. And we worked uh, across at the naval base in the communication centre. So I was a member of the New Zealand Air Force under the command of 9 Signals Regiment Australian Army and employed by the Royal Navy. Three services, three different countries. The Royal Navy was fun to work with. Lord Horatio Nelson was still the Admiral of the Fleet. <laughs> Everything was done precisely. If you wanted to go to the heads and you were in your operating bay, you had to put your hand up and the petty officer come down, what do you want? I need to go to the heads, pet. Right. You, take over this position. You, five minutes. See, so, and we were saying, what? This is, this is ridiculous. Yeah, there must be a better way of doing it. Anyway, after about three months of us Kiwis working in the RN comp centre, we had Horatio say, hey, I need to go to the heads. Need to go to the heads. Yeah, that's okay. I'll look after you. See, yeah, fine. And off you go. He gave up in the end. <laughs> you bloody colonials. <laughs> anyway, the big thing for me in Singapore was it was an aviation nutter's paradise. Remember, this is 1971-72. There was a small war going on in Vietnam, so we used to get things like this coming down. 
to be served because at Salita there was a huge maintenance space. There was Lockheed, Singapore, Salita, and there's a general. So used to get things like this coming down from Cambodia. In fact, one day I went out there and there were a whole line of these small aircraft at Salita, and there was a Pilatus Porter at this end. I noticed this registration as you always do, you nutters and take photos and take photos. There's about 15 aircraft. I got to number 14, looked up, Pilatus Porter. Same registration as the one back there. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder who operated that. Anybody got any ideas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, and we used to, so we used to get other things too, like come down. That's uh, uh, one of the nondescript aeroplanes that used to come down. Yeah, yeah. When the Brits left, they left a whole stack of javelins, uh, belvedere's, single pioneers. Two beautiful TT-10 Meteors, the last flying ones in the world, uh, and, that, and they all became instructional airframes for the newly formed Singapore Air Force. The old A-26, there are a number of those. And then, of course, we had Lockheed Singapore, so we used to get RC-121s, um, EW-121s, that all come down from off Vietnam and get serviced. The New Zealand air tours that they gave them. Um, and then we used to get these. Now if you look carefully, you can't read the, the serial number on it. They used to arrive in the dark, and the first thing that happened was a gantry would go out, serial number would be taken over. They'd go and do their maintenance, might take two weeks, come out, the last thing happened before it took off, the tape would come off. So there are a lot of funny things happening up there. The other interesting thing, of course, was that the that Singapore government was very vocal about this nasty war in Southeast Asia. But hey, <laughs> keep bringing your airplanes because it's making us lots of money. <laughs> so it was a bit two-faced. Another job that I had as a sideline job up there, because of my aviation interests, and um, many of you people know the late Cliff Cheeks, right? Cliff... Cliff and I had worked together in a couple of plays and we were both members of the Aviation Historical Society uh, and he, he knew my photographic interest and he also knew my, my knowledge of aircraft and he was working for Anzac Air Intelligence. And so on my days off, because again we worked shift work, he used to give me little jobs like go out to Pyalever and photograph all of the Aeroflot aircraft coming in because we were interested in all the extra antennas on them. These are commercial aircraft. But they had all these strange little bumps and lumps and extra aerials on. They may have been commercial aircraft on the outside, but they're also intelligence elant aircraft. And I'll tell you a quick funny story about that. These guys used to come up on the military HF flight follow frequency coming into Singapore. And they would call up Singapore Flight Watch, this is Aero Flight 6645. Can you give me the current weather Singapore? Uh, Aero Flight 555, the Singapore Flight Watch uh, train. Transfer to uh, sub-frequency uh, 8845, please. Yeah. Singapore flight brush. This is right. Fuck off. Oh, they, their English was actually not too bad. <laughs> you never heard from them again. Right, that aircraft there currently resides at Classic Flyers. 517. One of the jobs I had was that the Singaporean Air Force was going through a phase where they were writing off a number of hunters very rapidly. And they were mostly through landing accidents or takeoff accidents, 
And so they, they put these things on the back of a low loader in the middle of the night and race them off to Changi to be fixed. So trying to find out, because we all like our friends, but we needed to know what they're up to, um, what 140 and 141 squadrons current strength of hunters were. One of the jobs I did from time to time was I flew in whirlwinds of 103 squadron RAF, which is at Tanga, just for these guys, and we used to fly out, but we'd go out behind the hangars looking down the flight line. Now the Singaporeans had been trained religiously by the Israelis and the RAF, and so they dutifully every morning pulled out all of their hunters that were serviceable and parked them one, two, three, but they all had numbered slots. So all you had to do was go along and count the gaps, and you knew how many were available. <laughs> fairly done. Um, oh, look, there's a Kiwi Falcon. You Kiwi Roundup? Well, it just happened that a couple of P3s were up there on a, on a deployment, and that Vulcan was on its way back to the UK. So I had great fun taking that photograph and taking it into my RAF mate, who was a real airplane. So, but you didn't know we had Vulcans, mate. How long you had those? <laughs> um, we, had, one, we had nine. Yeah, yeah. One, yeah. 103, 103 Squadron flew whirlwinds when we first got up there. Uh, and again, uh, because I worked doing flight follow work and things like that, we always had a, had a very good chance of going for rides in them. So I did a number of trips in the whirlwind, uh, a very frightening aeroplane to be in. Only the British could build an aeroplane where the exhaust feeds directly into the cabin door. Yep. But great fun because we used to sit with monkey harnesses on and our feet outside the door and we used to fly over the palm, over the palm plantations and things at low level. And then the other good thing was that you used to go up south-east Johor, down around in the training area, and fly low-level down the beaches because there were lots of uh, Japanese glass fishing boys washed up on the beach, and the odd turtle, which we used to pick up and take back for the squadron pumps, or eating, depending on whether it was a turtle or a boy. Nimrods came out on um, tropical trials, the MR1s, and I did a couple of trips on um, an M MR1, one was a VHF trial and tack entry, which is about three-hour flight doing things, and then the other one was a patrol up the Malacca Straits. The first one was interesting because uh, typical British, the Vulcan, uh, the, the Nimrod, uh, didn't have any air conditioning in it. So when you started up at Singapore in 30 degrees, 110% humidity, and you taxied out and took off, as as you taxied out. Down to the, the tack rail where all the sensor equipment was, they rolled out plastic sheets over all of the equipment. Because as you climbed out, it rained inside the aeroplane with all the condensation. And they used to fly, they'd fly uh, high level, cool down, low level, get hot, high level, cool down, low level. So that, and that's how they, they did it because they had no aircon. The MR2 came out with the aircon in it, fortunately. The second trip was. Uh, full-length survey of all shipping in the Malacca Straits, one of the busiest shipping routes in the world. And they had the search water radar system. And it was amazing because we flew the full length of the Straits and we picked up 65 shipping targets. And when we got to Penang, we turned round and the tactical navigator had selected which targets he was interested in and the search radar then autopilot flew the aircraft to each of those targets, having worked out where it would now be, having 
worked out its speed and track in the meantime. A brilliant piece of kit. Um, and I finished off flights in Singapore with the Wessex uh, on 103 because the Wessex replaced the whirlwind. And that was a troop lift. We carried a company of troops, uh, there's only 90 of them, but we carried them from one landing zone to another, which was a 20 minute flight time. If they had tried to walk through the jungle, it would have taken them three days to get, do that distance. So that just proved the value of the helicopter. Okay, then I went to Whanapai and uh, again had lots of, uh, lots of opportunities to do lots of flights up there. Um, anybody remember a guy by the name of Bud Mills? Okay, Bud Mills was, a, was a, uh, an Air Force pilot who was also a very keen aviation historian and they probably had one of the best Harvard photo collections I've ever seen. Anyway, he was the ops officer at Three Squadron, so when I was working at Hobby, and I was a corporal in charge of the comp centre, I used to say to my young baggy right lad, you carry on, um, I'm just going over to Three Squadron to you know, see something. I go there and say to Bud, um, any rides going, Bud? Oh yeah, there's a guy in the Sioux going off for about an hour and a half. Do you want to go? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I did a lot of Sioux flying, the night flying, um, and things like, like that. So, and trips down to Thames and the Huey, uh, doing some mountain flying. So that was all, all good fun. Also did some more uh, Orion flying. Then I went to Tarapa, post to Tarapa, because uh, my boss found out that I wasn't being totally diligent at the hobby comp scene, so he thought I was being underemployed, so he'd send me to Tarapa, so that's why. And there I helped uh, Shorty Mines repaint Zero uh, Four. So that was my first introduction to Avenger Zero Four. Then, one day in early 1975, I got called up into the boss's office, and if you get called up into the boss's office, you've obviously done something horrendously wrong, because he never really called you up, and I went in there and thought, what have I done now? And he said, how'd you like to be an officer, Corporal? I said, oh, yeah, sounds like a good deal. He said, right, off to Fenerpai, do these tests, and I duly came down to Wigram in April of 1975, and did the Knives and Forks course and became a commissioned officer in the engineering branch because there was no communications branch at that point. So I was commissioned as an engineer. I also sat the engineer's exams and got more higher marks than my mate who was an engineer who really hacked him off. <laughs> but anyway, that's life. So then I went to uh, Wellington in 1975-76 to uh, learn how to write staff papers and things like that because that's what you've got to do when you're in Wellington. Um, and so... Um, I learned a lot about uh, the structure of the Air Force and the policy and philosophies of the Air Force doing those jobs and also it allowed me to have a lot more access to the historical files so my historical interests at the same time that Cliff Jenks was coming back into that area and Bud Mills was there so we had access to the historical files so we started learning a bit more about history. And then um, in 1976 I decided that I'd had enough of the single life and I'd better get married. And my boss said to me, you're getting married? I said, yep. He said, well, in that case, we better post you to Wigram because you no married quarters in Wellington. You're going to have to buy a house, and you can't afford a house on your salary. We'll send you to Wigram, and you can get a married quarter for $28 a week. Yep, you're on. So I came to Wigram as the comms flight commander. And that's where, again, and unfortunately, if the sound was going bad, we'd have sounds of a TBF, where we 
started working on this, and uh, that was the, sort of the main key thing at Wigram. When the Avenger arrived down here, um, two things happened before that. Though. When I got down to Wigram in 76, the base commander, uh, Group Captain Jeff Hubbard, who had just also been posted not long before from Wellington, knew of my historical interests, so I was immediately appointed the secretary of the RNZAF, RNZAF Historical Centre, the forerunner of this museum. And uh, so I, I was on that committee. Then when the Avenger came down, I volunteered to become the project leader uh, to restore the aircraft, uh, and we called that Project Phoenix. And we had lots of fun, including coercing some very young, naive, buddy, ATC cadets, who were silly enough to volunteer, um, to help us. And to be honest, they were a great assistance. I myself, in the period 78 to 80, spent over 600 hours uh, on the aircraft. Uh, and we restored it to as close to flying condition as possible, well, even though it was not going to fly. All of the technical uh, work put into it was all documented. We raised a, a new uh, Form 701, which is an airframe log, and we did everything in accordance with the books. A quick diversion. Engine run. We got the aircraft to a stage where the engine could be run. And so George John Zemus, this fellow here, oh, that guy there, his real name is actually Peter Thomas. And that's a whole new story. But anyway, um, said, right, we, if we're going to run this thing, we're going to have to run it. He said, it's all ready to go. Uh, so I went down to one store because he'd worked out that OM270 uh, oil was the same spec as W100, which is what the engine used. So I went down there and I went into the oil store and I said to the old GSH down there, I said, he said, what do you want, sir? And I said, um, I'm on the bludge. He said, what? I said, I need a drum of oil. You yeah, what a what? <laughs> yeah. I said, I need a drum of OM270. What for? I said, the Avenger. He said, oh, the Avenger. Hang on a minute. He walks over and gets, a, gets the old drum spanner out, opens a brand new drum, pulls the bloody bung out and goes, oh, look at that bloody contaminator. Can't put that in an air trainer. I'll deliver it to you in five minutes. <laughs> it turned out he had been a winch operator on the, on the Avenger. So he had a good... So anyway, so we got this, it was in August, miserable wet day, the battery cart we're using was a 400 buddy, uh, amp battery cart, which is the only battery cart at Wigram that could start an Andover, and there was an Andover coming in later, so we got down there, George Hot Oil primed it, we pulled it out, and we started turning this thing over and turning this thing over, and it coughed and splattered and coughed and splattered and splattered and coughed and flicked around a bit, and then the... <laughs> The base engineering officer came down and he looked at me and he said, Bloody Harrison, he said, I heard you were trying this today. I said, yeah, we just about got it to go. He said, you've got one more shot at it, and then you're going to have to stop because we need the battery cart for the Andover. Well, of course, naturally the next time it fired up. We ran it for 20 minutes. We had a 40-gallon oil tank on it. It chewed up 37 gallons of oil as all the oil seals took up. Everything that dried out started to take up. So after that, we, um, we had to run it once a week, didn't we, Baz? Yep. Um, and we got it to the stage where we could taxi it round uh, quite safely. Uh, the, the fuel in it, um, the main, we only used the centre tank, we didn't use the wing tanks, we only used the centre tank. 
The centre tank had a crease in the top of the rubber bag, so you could only ever put 80 gallons in it, otherwise it spilled at the top. Um, so that was good, so we, we did a lot of work on that, and um, by the time I left in, in March 80, it was in really good shape, and uh, there we go. So, in March nine, in April, yeah, April 1980, my boss rang me up and said, hey, you're coming to Wellington. I said, oh, jeez, I'm just starting to enjoy working here, and I've got this bloody aeroplane I'm rebuilding, you know, what do you want to ruin my day for? He said, look, you're going to come to Wellington, that's the next thing on the list, but as compensation, we're going to send you to America for 14 weeks on a course. So I went to Scott Air Force Base, uh, and I did the uh, United States Air Force Radio Management course. But because I was going over there, I managed to get an introduction on the way uh, through Washington. I didn't go to Washington first to be briefed on what I was going to do in, at Scott Air Force Base. I arrived in Washington at the Embassy Golf Week. So my boss, that I had to report to, who had been my boss in Wellington, said, oh, said we're off playing golf this week, so become a tourist for a week. Oh, okay. And I had a letter of an introduction to the um, Smithsonian Museum to uh, the um, Silver Hill Restoration Area. And I went up there and introduced myself, and the guy said, look, we're pretty busy today. He said, but there's 34 warehouses out there. Help yourself. And literally, there was half the Luftwaffe straight off the battlefield that had come to the, U to the US to be foreign, foreign evaluated aircraft that had come out of that and were all in there. So that's the Arado 196 off the Prince Eugen, their German battleship. That's the back end of the Enola Gay. That's the front end of the Enola Gay. And I've sat in Paul Tibbetts' seat. Um, that was a Focke-Wulf 190 that they were just starting to work on. And you can see there's the foreign evaluation number that the American Air Force put on. That's the cockpit of it. And that, Baz, was the oldest TBF in the world at that time. Yeah, We had the second oldest, and that's the oldest. So anyway, off to Scott Air Force Base and learned all about um, what to do in nuclear fallout and stuff like that for communications and all those good things. What date was that here in Silver Hill? Hey? What day were you in Silver Hill? What, what month? Oh, it would have been... April 1980, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. 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 Great place, eh? Oh, yeah. Scott Air Force Base uh, was the home of the United States Air Force Aeromedic Evacuation uh, Service. And they used to fly uh, three DC-9 flights out of Scott to Europe or Asia every day and bring back evacuated uh, medica medical cases. Um, at Lambert Field in St. Louis, Missouri, was where the F-15E Eagles were just being produced. They were just starting the production line, and we actually we had a, did a tour through the factory. Got a tour organised. The Eagle, like the Mosquito, was built in two halves and then glued together. So, so in the factory, you could see the two halves of the fuselage with all the plumbing inside and the wiring and everything, and then they glued them together. The irony of the production was, and remember this is in 1980 and there was still a cold war on, as we stood up on a, uh, and looked down into the machine shop and there were, there were eight massive big lays machining titanium billets into various airframe parts. And the guy said, well there's two things about this. He said, 
of all the schwarf that comes off those billets, he said, we can recover about 70%, because titanium is not too cheap. He said, the other irony with it is that all that titanium comes from Russia, because <laughs> Russia had the biggest reserves of titanium. Um, these guys came, the Thunder Chiefs came down and did a, did a display one day, that was uh, quite interesting. Uh, and then I went down to uh, Tennessee, and look at the nose of that hurt. What happened to it? It's a C-130A, no radome, one of the earliest Turks. So that was a good 14 weeks. And then, uh, because the course finished slightly early, I had to go back to Washington, so I had another three days as a tourist. And then they said, well, do you want to go home straight now? And now, you know, being a married man, I, I was desperately needing to go home. I said, I wouldn't mind going to L.A. for a couple of days. I want to go to Chino. Oh, that's all right. So I went to Chino and went to L.A. But in the meantime, I had made a trip to Wright-Patterson Air Force Museum. Uh, it was all jacked up. It was really good. We got into the museum uh, two hours before it opened to the public. So we had free range of all this display with no people around. And that was an interesting aircraft. That was a Ju-88, um, which was a Hungarian one. The interesting thing was that those prop blades all hand-filed finished. You could actually see the filing marks were on the props, because this, you know, towards the end of the war they were just shunting things out. Um, and then, tucked away in a corner, was my old friend, double six, double seven, double two, the U2. It's in the museum at Wright Pat. So I went to uh, LA and went out to Chino. That was the scrapyard at Chino. Just part of it. And I'm wandering around. The guy said, I said to him, yeah, can I uh, have a wander? Yeah, fill your boots. So I started wandering off around these things out here. And he calls and he said, watch out for the rattlers. <laughs> <laughs> Ki Kiwi boy does a sudden stop. <laughs> uh, there were some spads, ex-Vietnamese Air Force were also there. And one of the aircraft was this, an SPD-5. Well, look at those markings. NZ5062. Yep. Right, so that's about where I've got to stop. You're going to miss out on Somalia and all the other bits. But anyway, that's another day. So there we go. The DC2. Okay. Give it away. If you want to Anyone want to hear any more? <laughs> okay, very quick. Trips to, trips to the UK, to the IAT. There's our Maggie. There's a frog foot F-25. Uh, that's in the Boeing. There's one of the Kiwi pilots sitting in a frog foot. Ramp parties were great fun. And then off to, uh, uh, this is IAT again. Um, 94 was the, the uh, anniversary of the Hercules. That was an 8,000 foot runway <coughs> with wall-to-wall -wall Hercules from all around the world. In every sort of model you could think of. And then there was another one, the bear. And then 95, of course, was the end of WW2. And then very quickly, Somalia. That's Mogadishu Airport. That's where the Kiwi camp was. That's the runway. We were 30 metres from the runway. Um, and then the airfield was scattered with uh, those guys, the wrecked aircraft at Somali Air Force. Um, that's battle damage. Um, and then, yeah, getting there and back. And then Vietnam, 
The only time in the Air Force where I flew on an aircraft and officially was given a drink. <laughs> only because we had Jeff Braybrook, the MP, on board. And it was a bit Kurdish to give him a drink and not us. And that was Vietnam. We took a bunch of medics back to Vietnam, uh, to uh, Bon Son, and we went into Quinon, uh, to Phu Cat, which is an American-built airfield just out of, out of Bon Son. Um, during the trip there, we paid tribute to the one and only New Zealander killed in the Vietnam War, uh, Sergeant Gordon Watt, uh, who, when I joined the Air Force, was a GSI instructor at Woodburn, and then later became a medic, and had the misfortune to stand on a landmine when he was serving in Vietnam. So we just did a bit. So there you go. So, from 25 words a minute to 10 megabytes a second. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.